Hello there, my name's Adam Spring, and this is a Remotely Interested podcast, hosted at remotely-interested.com. My guest this episode is John Matheson, who currently works at NVIDIA. Before this, however, he went from Cambridge University to work for Sir Clive Sinclair at Spectrum and Sinclair Research. He then went on to co-form a startup called Flare, which got acquired by Atari and ultimately ended up in the Jaguar gaming console. From there, John went on to VM Labs and... Uh, did stuff on the Nuon, and there's a distinct British connection all the way through his career, even though he moved to the US when he started working with Atari. For example, Jeff Minter worked on the Jaguar through Tempest 2000. He also went on and did Tempest 3000 with the Nuon. We also talk about things like the Raspberry Pi. John was at Cambridge, and so the Raspberry Pi is very much of that, that lineage and something that John's sort of used to, and some real positive feedback from that. Obviously, you can't talk about Atari or Spectrum without talking about Sir Clive Sinclair and Jack Tramiel. So we've got some stuff in there as well. And also, I thought it'd be interesting, you know, he's a developer of the Jaguar. I, I had to ask him about the Coleco Chameleon as well. From there, I would say one of the really valuable things about this particular podcast is about the startup and about maybe how the hardware startup is no longer out there anymore because of you know, just the nature of what it takes to develop hardware now. Anyway, I hope you enjoy the episode as much as I enjoyed doing it, and I'll speak to you again after the show. If Doctor Who isn't enough for you, Cardiff Wales has another claim to fame. It's the home of Aeon Technology Limited. That's a-eon.biz. Aeon Technology is creating Amiga One computers, and around that, they are also developing out softwares like ImageFX, Personal Paint, Octomed. They also have Amistore.net, which is their developer platform. Anyway, if you're interested in any kind of computing, and particularly Amiga-based computing, go over to a-eon.biz. That's a-eon.biz. pvpubs.co.uk. It's more than a catchy website name. It's the home of Geomatics World and GIS Professional. If you have any geospatial needs or any interest in the geospatial industry, why not go over to pvpubs.co.uk and why don't you reach out to them if you're interested in advertising with them or wanting to put an article in one of their publications. Anyway, that's pvpubs.co.uk. Hello, sticker lovers. Why don't you head over to stickerrobot.com? That's sticker with one R, obot with no R.com. They can also basically print out any forms of stickers that you want. Die cut stickers, clear stickers, business card stickers, round stickers, any kind of stickers you want. Go over to stickerrobot.com. Minotaur or Minotaur? It doesn't really matter, though. Because if you head over to the minotaurproject.co.uk, you will come across Lamasoft. Now, Lamasoft is a Wales-based independent games developer headed by Jeff Minter. Jeff is famous for such titles as Tempest 2000 and Tempest 3000, and he's also worked on systems like the Xbox. Anyway, if you're into good gaming, you're into independent gaming, and you're into independent development and gaming, why don't you head over to the minotaurproject.co.uk. So, what are you currently doing for NVIDIA then? I work in a system architecture role. I'm currently part of the automotive team selling uh, the Tegra SOCs into cars. I've seen some of the automotive stuff a few years ago at the CES for like sensors and sensing and things like that. Is it all tied in with that or? Well, our current business is mostly in um, infotainment systems, as they call it. So driving the center screen in the console doing 
um, navigation and multimedia. Um, but our big push is into self-driving cars, doing what they call it. Wow. So how did you end up at NVIDIA then? What was your pathway to getting to NVIDIA? <laughs> I've worked for NVIDIA twice in my career. The first time I joined NVIDIA was back in 2001 when VM Labs crashed. VM Labs was the creator of the Nuon system, and it ended up ending rather unpleasantly. It went bankrupt. At that time, the, the dot-com boom had just busted, so the safety of a large company was very appealing at the time. Seems as though there's quite a lot of Brits from the 80s and the 90s computing scene now working in either the gaming or sort of hardware scene over on the West Coast. How did, the, how did that kind of happen? Is it just because a pool of talent sprung out of, like, the Cambridge scene in the 80s, or how did that come about? Well, I think Jensen likes the feeling that he's got the best and brightest of every company that's gone before. He likes hiring people who have who have a history, who have a background, and there's a lot, you know, all, all the, the key people from Silicon Graphics who are still around, most of them are at NVIDIA now, and similarly, 3DFX, et cetera, et cetera, the list goes on. What was your pathway from being at Cambridge, doing your qualifications, and then ending up at Spectrum? How did, how did that come about? Uh, well, it was one of those stories. I met a girl in a bar. <laughs> <laughs> who uh, was hanging out with a bunch of buddies. She, she ended up going out with one of my buddies, but um, it turns out her father was a recruiter who uh, we were hanging out at their house one night, and he said, what are you doing? And I said, well, you know, I've just graduated from Cambridge. I'm looking for a job. Oh, he says, I'm a recruiter. I've got this company. I might be looking for someone like you. And he introduced me to Clive Sinclair, and Clive Sinclair hired me. Oh, wow. And what's Clive like as a, as a personality? I imagine he's a character. He's a character, yeah. He can be very short-tempered, but he's a, he's a great boss. He was a lot of fun to work for. Very sociable man, very good at, loved to party, would take us all out at least once a week, invite us to parties at his house. You know, it was a young, fun company, and he, he loved hanging with us. He's a something of a party animal. So, so what did you actually do for Spectrum while you were at Spectrum? I was hired as the Spectrum was in development, and my first job was to test the basic interpreter. So I was sat down in front of his large breadboard which was uh, all the Spectrum was at that time, which had an early version of the BASIC interpreter. And my job was to basically do QA on the BASIC. So I wrote BASIC programs, I tested, tried to make it break, found many, many bugs, got them fixed. And then from there, didn't you um, also work on a project called Loki as well, which I'd be really interested to know some more about? Yeah, I mean, I slid from that role in, into the hardware side. Clive was a guy who was bored by the current product, was always looking at the next thing. So um, I was the junior guy in the office, so I got left doing Spectrum support, which led me into doing hardware for it, doing redesigns of the chip, redesigns of the board, and then from there into chip design. So um, it was a project I worked on for some time. I forget what it was called now. Clive wanted to build a essentially an early laptop based around the flat screen television technology, which would have been something very weird because it had a large lens in front of if you've ever seen that um, Terry Gilliam film, Brazil, with the very straight, it was a little bit like that. And then Loki, Loki was never much more than a proposal. It was just an idea to do a new gaming computer. From what I read researching before our interview, people had looked at what the Amiga was doing. Is, is that true? Yeah, in, in many ways. We looked at the Amiga when it came out and really felt that it was it was a very cool computer. I mean, a huge respect to those guys and what they did. But as a, at Sinclair, we were all about building the cheapest hardware we possibly could. And it seemed a waste to have multiple ways of doing animation. They had a blitter and they had a sprite engine. Why do you need both? They're both essentially doing the same thing, which is animating pixels on the screen. So we thought, we can do this, but we can do it cheap. So from there, you went on to Flare. And how much of that, that period of the sort of like Loki period and looking at the Amiga and stuff like that influenced what happened with Flare? 
Well, Flair was very much an intent to carry on the, the spirit of what we wanted to do to build a very low-cost um, gaming computer. So, you know, Sinclair collapsed. Um, Amstrad bought out the rights. Pretty much everybody got laid off. And so the three of us said, let's go start a company and, and do this ourselves. So Ben, Martin, and I founded Flair Technology over a weekend. In those days, there was really, Cambridge wasn't the startup phenomenon it, it is today. There was, wasn't really much track record of startups. There was no funding to be had beyond going to banks who were very reluctant to lend money. So we said we'd fund it by doing consultancy work for various local companies. And, you know, we'd spend half our time doing that and half our time developing this new game computer. Wow. Yeah, we called that Flair One. It was a local company called uh, Kudos who were taking TI gate arrays. This was the era when it was a single layer of metal. So they had an EB machine they could customize. You could essentially do your own custom chip one at a time. So it was a very low-cost way of doing chips. So we did a set of four chips that were Flair One uh, using the Kudos technology and built a, a prototype around that. It, it's kind of incredible, isn't it, that you think now with the amount of people that you need to develop hardware that in those days it literally could be a small team of people sort of doing that it's it's kind of incredible really three guys in the garage wow basically. it's what most it's i mean most law was a wonderful thing it's done many great things for us but it's taken that away chips now are just too big and too complicated to do with a tiny team. yeah and what do you think is kind of lost from having that small team of everybody knowing each other um, well, it, what, what makes me sad is that really aren't any hardware startups anymore. And startups in any form are really fun to work at. But a small team all pulling hard in the same direction is just so incredibly productive and so fun to work as part of. So from the Flare 1 then, leading on to the Flare 2 and the Tremils and Atari, how did you get involved with Atari then? What was, what was your pathway to the Jaguar stroke Panther? Well, there's a guy called Richard Miller who's a recurring thread in my career. Richard Miller had worked as a contractor for Sinclair and stayed on with, uh, he was actually doing a floppy disk interface for the, for the Spectrum um, as a piece of contract design work. He stayed on, he, he ended up staying in Cambridge working for Clive and doing the uh, Z88, which, which was a, um, sort of like, like the, um, what was it? The Tandy was the first one, wasn't it? Radio Shack thing. It was, it was a flat computer with a little tiny LCD screen. Anyway, Richard had then gone from there to working for Atari um, and moved out in the late 80s, moved out to California to work, work for Atari in California. So we had an in with Atari. So Richard was the way in. And then from there, what was it like? Um, did, you meet, did you meet Jack much at all? Or was it mainly Sam and the other children? Who did, who did you mainly interface with there from the Tremiel family? Um, the day-to-day working with Atari, the sons were in charge, but anything big, Jack. That's interesting. And what was he like as a character? Um, he was like a boss monster. <laughs> he was this, you know, very strong personality, little, very rounded man, you know, big guy, not very tall, um, loud voice, just would thump the table to get to make his point. So he was definitely a presence when he came in the room. You knew he, you knew he was there, essentially. Very presence, yes. The, the best, somebody did, I, I wish I knew what happened to it. Somebody, it was a time when you could build custom levels for Doom, and someone built a Doom level that was the Atari building. <laughs> Jack was the monster. <laughs> that's the hilarious. That's, that's such a wonderful story. <laughs> wow. And um, so what's your sort of key memory? Because obviously, you know, I, I have a Jaguar, so I, this, this interview on the hardware side may be a little bit Jag-heavy, simply because I've still got one. But what are your main memories from that period of developing the Jaguar? What are the things that really stuck out to you? Uh, well, the fun thing about Jaguar was it was the first time anyone had tried to do 3D for a, a, anything at this price point. Up to that point, every game machine, every game console was, was 2D. It was sprites. It was things sliding around the screen. We said, let's go do 3D. What the heck? Someone described it as nobody ever told these guys that 3D was hard, so they didn't so they did it anyway. <laughs> um, we bought a copy of Folio Van Damme, which was like the... 
the canon canonical uh, 3D graphics book, read it from cover to cover, um, coded up a 3D graphics engine in C, and then turned as much of it as we could into hardware. Um, we were just, you know, pushing the limits on everything. We, we had to invent our own color space, because one thing we realized that doing shading, we, we thought, we looked at texture mapping. One of our big mistakes on Jaguar was we, we discounted texture mapping as a technique. We decided it was too expensive, and that if we could do things with Gura shading and maybe a little bit of texture, we could build really interesting 3D graphics. So the power of Jaguar was all about rendering Guru shaded triangles. Um, but shading is expensive too. And part of that is the math you have to do to, to interpolate the shade across the triangle. So we invented our own color space called CRY. So we only had to do math in, in one dimension rather than in three, which you have to do for YUV or RGB. So it was a luminance plus an 8-bit color value. So that meant we needed one third of the AOUs you would have needed otherwise to do RGB shading. And what games do you think actually show the best sort of 3D capabilities of the Jaguar or did as close to what you wanted to achieve with it? Well, I, th I think Cybermorph encapsulated what we were setting out to do because it was a very guru-shaded world. So yeah. if there's a game that was closest to what we thought we were trying to build, it was Cybermorph. But the, the guys that blew our mind were, were the ADP guys. I mean, especially the... The early one of the sad things that happened with ADP is the early demos were just fabulous, beautiful. By the time they put all the AI into the game, the frame rate went went down quite a long way. Oh, really? So it was even more impressive than it was at the time then. Oh, it was, wow! It was probably twice the frame rate. Yeah, it was super smooth. Um, and the other guys, who, well, apart from Jeff Mincher, of course, who went in his own direction, <laughs> would do things like drive the graphics hardware backwards for effects. <laughs> so a lot of the explosions. A lot, we had stuff for taking images and scaling them. I mean, there was some support for doing texture-type operations. He, he would use it to create explosions. So instead of trying to scale a texture map down onto a surface, he was blowing it up the other way. Jeff did some crazy stuff with the hardware. Um, the other guys who really pushed it were, um, I forget their names now, the game was Iron Soldier. It was an Iron Soldier 2. They, they really pushed the limits too. When I think of 3D, Iron Soldier is one of the ones that I actually think of in terms of, you know, the way you're moving through the landscape and stuff like that. It is quite impressive. They were the guys who really pushed home to us that we've made a mistake with a lack of support for texture mapping. So for the Atari Jaguar 2 then, did you basically, how would, how would have that taken shape if you'd had the opportunity to do it? Well, we built the, there was the if you remember in Jaguar, the two chips, Tom and Jerry. Tom, Tom was about yep. graphics and Jerry was about audio. We, we actually taped out the equivalent of Tom for Jaguar 2. So that worked and it had, um, the, the texture mapping weakness in Jaguar 1 was the textures had to come out of DRAM. So typically you're doing a, a 2D interpolation, so you're reading four texels for each output pixel. So it was five times slower. So what we did on Jaguar 2 was we added some on-chip texture RAM so we could get rid of all those reads and you could do them in parallel. So we actually had some texture RAM and some texture ROM. So Jaguar 2 was, I forget now how much faster it was. I mean, it was about 10 or 15 times faster at doing texturing. Yeah, going on from there as well, what, what's your opinion of the Coleco Chameleon that's coming out with the, you know, the actual molds of the Jaguar? Have you looked at that at all? Or, or you not? know, it's not the first time those, those molds have reappeared. If you if you, dig, if you dig on the web, there's actually a, a dentist's um, tooth cleaning system that used that mold. Yeah, that's who they bought it off. They bought they bought them off the dentist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So what's what? But what's your? I mean, I know it's only the shower, but what's your kind of? Uh, you know, the it clearly the Jaguar clearly had a cultural impact. So as one of the creators, do you think it's kind of cool that people are doing that now, or are you kind of like, oh, what's the point? No, you know I, mean? I think it's very <laughs> cool. It's, 
kind of interesting that they'd even care about that. Well, apparently they're showing it off in February of, well, it's 2016 now. So apparently they're showing it off in a toy, sh- toy show in February. So it should be interesting to see what they're going to do with it. Um, So moving on from there then, I'd like to talk a little bit more about Jeff Minter and kind of maybe the British connection with the Jaguar. You know, in terms of the development, how much on the software end was there a British influence on it? You know, like for the games and British developers and things like that. Um, It was, well, there was a heavy British influence. Obviously, we just... We developed Jaguar itself in Cambridge. We did the first developers conference, as I recall, was at Heathrow. Oh wow! Okay. I think my getting my developers conference is mixed up. But yeah, I mean Jeff. Jeff was working out of Wales at that point. Um, the the Cybermorph guys. I forget what that company was called. But they were um, someone here, Oxford, I think. Um, ATD. Attention to detail. That, that was the software company that did Cybermorph. But the 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 center of things. Jaguar moved to California. Um, what happened after the Jaguar launched in '93? Jack wanted uh, Martin and I to move to California and work for him directly. Martin chose to go off and do his own thing and that's what brought me to California. What was that like then, going through developing, obviously, in your own space to then trying to work in somebody else's space? What was that that? Well, they kind of left me alone. I think they realised they didn't didn't want to... destroy that so they Atari had this big building in Borregas Avenue in Sunnyvale and essentially they were all the what was left of Atari at that point was mostly in the upstairs so they gave me a corner office downstairs and left me told me to hire some people and get on with it oh well that sounds good yeah. <laughs> so later I learned that this, this office was known as the um, exit lounge because the departure lounge rather because um, so many people who'd been hired were moved there just before they got fired <laughs> So how much input did you have on the JAG CD and the virtual headset as well? Did you have any input at all? or Not, not a great deal, no. The, the CD was developed in California. I mean, it was in development. Richard Miller had a couple of guys working on that before I moved over. So, you know, we worked with them on it, but um, that was developed in California by Richard's team. So it was that was very early on then in the... Before even launched, then by the sounds of it, then it was already ready to go. Um, wow. Ready to go might be a stretch, but it was in development, yes. So after the Jaguar then... What did you move on and do once Atari obviously got bought by other people and things like that? How, what did you move in direction then? Um, so at that time, I, I, I interviewed a few of the startups that around at that time. One, one of them was a company called Chromatic. Chromatic had a, a media processor for PCs. It was a card that could be a sound card or it could be, it could be a graphics card. And they didn't survive. It didn't succeed. But one of the great, perhaps, wrong turns in my life was the, the guy who'd done IT for Atari. was at that chatting with him about looking for a job. And he said, oh, I've got this uh, graphics star stuff I'm working at. You should come and interview with them. Um, I said, graphics startup? You must be joking. At that time, I think there were 35 graphics startups in the, in the Bay Area. Yeah, the one he was working at, of course, was NVIDIA. Oh, <laughs> not a bad one to work at then in, in retrospect. Yes, I could have been in very early on that one. Um, so, that, But Richard had started VM Labs by this point, so I went over and joined Richard there. So it sounds as though Richard Miller really was sort of like a pivotal figure in your kind of career in one point. In, in, one in more than one. At more Yes. From there then, how did you get involved with the new one and sort of VM Lab? Richard left Atari about six months before I did and founded VM Labs with the goal of building this media processor. He, of course, wasn't allowed to approach me to join him, um, So, but I, I approached him and uh, so he hired me. I was employee number four at VM Labs. The two previous guys were software guys. So I was kind of in from the start. And we were, at that point, they had a software model of what this media processor would look like and we took it from there and built a ship. What's your what's your memories of working on the new one? 
again, it was the, that, that, that startup dynamic that we're talking about. I mean, VM Labs, the early days, we were a team of maybe a dozen people you know, tightly focused on getting this done, um, getting a chip taped out. Um, it grew to a total of about 120 people. Um, we got design wins with uh, Toshiba and Samsung, the DVD players. We had a set-top box project going with Motorola. I ended up running a software team. Oh, wow, okay. Because um, the guy who was running the software group, very, very brilliant guy, a guy called Matthew Halfant, was very smart, but wasn't really an execution guy. He didn't know how to manage a team to create, get a product into manufacture. So I took over running the software team to get the software taped out for the DVD players. So I mean, the new on play was to build this media processor that could go into anything that needed digital video. But because it was a media processor, when it's not decoding digital video, you could repurpose that hardware to do something else. Oh, okay. The business model was that we'd sell chips to into video decoders, and the first first market was DVD players, and then we'd sell in the aftermarket games or applications for those DVD players that would make them much more than just a DVD player. And we'd, we'd get a royalty on the DVD player itself, but much more importantly, get a royalty on the software. It kind of reminded me a little bit of like what Trip Hawkins was trying to do at 3D. Yes, but I mean, the, 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 the advantage here compared to what Trip Hawkins was doing was without any games, the the, the box is still useful. It was a yeah. great, it was a great DVD player too. So it had value even with no games. Yeah, it was kind of like a pre-streaming day sort of all-in-one entertainment system. By the, by, at least that was my interpretation of it. Anyway. Yes, exactly. Um, and it got us also, also got us around the cash twenty-two of unless you've got hundreds of millions of dollars like Sony, um, you can't sell a game machine without games. You can't get games without selling game machines. So it allowed us to start building up an installed base um, without having a lot of software. It's interesting that you bring up Sony because I would say for me, in terms of what I do now from a 3D imaging standpoint, my formative years were like 85 to 95 in the British computing scene. And for me, Sony sort of took all of the creative stuff to me, or a lot of it that was in like gaming and stuff like that. Like if you look at that early period in the 90s, you've got things like Games Master and Bad Influence, which if you look up on YouTube you've got this incredible sort of bedroom developer, but also just these talented people that are just able to just work with these systems and breathe life into them, you know? So the Sony thing I find kind of interesting because it's kind of, once they come in, to me, that's when the big development cycle comes in. If you look at something like the PlayStation and the drive towards 3D and things like that, yeah. you know? So it's interesting you should mention that. So I'm glad you were still doing that with the new one <laughs> and, and trying to carry on that vibe because I think, I don't know, that's the big appeal of those years for me on a sort of hardware software standpoint is it, it seemed like a very creative time. We're small group of people could do like wonderful things if that makes sense yes and it was lovely it was the, the spectrum generation grew up and wrote games and there was this incredible creative surge especially coming out of the uk i think also as well and i mean i don't know whether you feel the same way but as an expat now living in the us when i look back historically or retrospectively on that period of time over here particularly with say something like the amiga you obviously didn't have that groundswell from that 8-bit generation so when the amiga came out over here as a small box there was no way it was going to be nothing more than a specialist system because it didn't have the developers like in the UK, whereby it was all about efficient, cheap systems and having accessibility to them and getting the most out of the hardware. So would you agree with that? Or Yeah, I mean, the Mega was too expensive. That was... <laughs> Come back to that theme again. I mean, the Spectrum was so successful because it was dirt cheaper. It was, you know, the, the entry one was like £99. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm trying to remember now, but it was there's a magic price point there, and it had this sort of pseudo dual role where it was educational as well as playing games. So a lot of parents would buy one for their kids, whereas they might not have sprung for something that cost three times as much and really was less obviously educational. 
do you like in terms of the acorn side of stuff do you have any memories from that time because i'm assuming you were in the same sort of social circles as you know the acorn guys and stuff like that clive was great buddies with um what were their names herman hauser and um chris curry was it yes chris chris curry and herman hauser were the two leads of acorn yeah we used to go drinking with them oh wow okay and they they were always at Clive's parties. Yeah, no, it was it was a tight a tight circle. Despite the business um, competition, personally, they got on very well. Although there was the famous story of Clive and Chris Curry coming to blows one night, but that wasn't how they normally behaved to each other. So, so the mic the micro men sort of film was very greatly exaggerated then by the by the looks of it. Yeah, it was very unfair to Clive. What's your sort of, you know, in modern day sort of terms? What's your opinion of things like the Raspberry Pi and stuff like that? Um, it's very cool. I mean, it's it, it it's it's lovely to see that sort of thing coming back again. Something you can get in and tinker with. I mean, there was really through the nineties there was nothing like that. People tinkered. Perhaps it, the tinkering energy went into things like Linux and PCs. And it's nice to see it coming back to small, simple systems. And do you think it's sort of the, the Raspberry Pi has very much captured the spirit of things like the Spectrum and stuff like that? You know, and obviously because it it comes from that. Obviously, with Eben and stuff, there is that Cambridge connection. Yeah, I mean, I think philosophically, there's a, there's a strong connection. It's small, it's simple, it's programmable, it's go play with it. The, the Spectrum was all about a TV screen, whereas the Raspberry Pi is much more about things. Um, but yeah, there's a common philosophy there. It's a, it's a hacker's thing. Yeah, and do you think sort of stuff like that, and also, you know, the cell phone generation or mobile phone for people maybe listening in the UK, of we've now come back to where it's not necessarily having to have massively powerful systems, but efficient systems. Do you think we're starting to go back to like the 80s and 90s where you had to be efficient in what you did with what you had? Do you think there's elements of that through things like the Raspberry Pi and cell phones and stuff like that? I don't think cell phones are anything like what we were building in the 80s. Well, no, but I mean, okay, I mean, maybe in terms of distributed computing, so you can spread the processing out to somewhere else, if that makes sense. So I'm talking about, maybe I'm talking about decentralized sort of um, workflows or decentralized processing, whereby you don't necessarily have to have a massively powerful home terminal anymore. You can distribute the processing to somewhere else. Yeah, I mean, we live in a different different world. I mean, it's, it's you know, what, what Sun said 20 years ago now is true. The network is the computer. And when Sun said it, we thought, they're full of shit. <laughs> 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 That's not true. But re- really, it is now. I mean, whether it's the connected home or, or you know, Amazon Web Services, whatever. The, in, the, in the 80s, the computer was like its own little island a single thing and that's that's not true anymore i mean and that's perhaps the raspberry pi plays into that it's connected it's it's doing doing stuff with with interfacing to the rest of the world it's the modern it's the more it's the fun area in this in this era to go out and tinker with computers i guess the last question i would probably ask you is you know i guess i kind of i've kind of asked you it already but i'll ask you it just so I've, i've got it recorded what do you think of people still keeping older systems like the spectrum like the jaguar alive now did you ever i mean obviously Maybe you didn't, but did you ever foresee people doing that? Or does it amaze you now what people will do to keep this old hardware and software and all this stuff going still? No, I think it's great. I, I actually have, it's a conversation piece. I never plugged in, but sitting on my desk at work, I have a ZX81. Oh, yeah. really? And it's so many people, wonder, especially the older guys, wonder by my cubes. Ah, well, I had one of these. I've included a couple of links below this podcast. One is from Sir Clive Sinclair, where he talks about retro being the new new. I've also included the Games Master and Bad Influence television series that I mention. If you look at season one and two, you really do get an idea of just how much on fire the independent computing scene was, not just in Britain, 
but in Europe as well. In fact, I've also included a little clip to an Amos competition that ran on Games Master because yeah, it's just nice, you know, and you'll see it's a European thing. Another thing I found interesting about John's interview was this transition from the 8-bit to the 16-bit generation. I, I can't emphasize enough how impactful the Amiga 500 computer, for example, was in the UK and Europe. Again, I put some links to that below this podcast. And similar to a friend of mine, a guy by the name of Dave Needle, I find or found listening to John kind of uh, an example of sitting under the learning tree. John has just had such a wealth of experience in so many different areas and so many different times of hardware development. And my friend Dave, it's a similar kind of thing. Sometimes you're just kind of like, whoa, you really did do that, didn't you? Anyway, I hope you enjoyed the podcast as much as I enjoyed doing it. I think there's lots there. You know, I could go on more. I could I could wax lyrical, for example, about how I think people like John, they say something about this idea. You know, some people say in Silicon Valley, there's this idea of there being a gold rush. And yeah, I, d- I don't agree with that concept. I think if you go to a podcast that I did with Howard Rheingold, for example, we talk a lot about some of the ideas that, you know, came through in the 60s. You know, I think there's a lot to learn from people like John about the past. And I think by doing that, the product just becomes so much richer. And I think, you know, his observations about Jensen at uh, NVIDIA states that in volumes, you know, the guy is looking at the legacy of the people that he employs and feeding that into you know a very, very intuitive product. Anyway, as I said, I hope you enjoyed it and thanks for now. Hello there, my name's Adam Spring and I'm here to talk to you about a number of ways in which you can stay connected with and contribute to the Remotely Interested podcast. As I've said before, it's listener supported and I love to include you guys as, as much as I can. Anyway, The big two are iTunes and SoundCloud, which you can subscribe to. Also for SoundCloud, you can follow, you can like, you can share. You can do a number of things with the content that I put up there. There's also Google Play where you can check this podcast out. And there's also a Facebook page that you can like. Now, in terms of connecting with me directly, there's a Twitter handle, which is at that interested. You can also follow and reach out to me there. And there's also the remotely interested email as well, which is contact at remotely-interested.com. Anyway, I love doing this for you. I hope you enjoy it and thanks for listening to the show.